us pray. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For my talk, I will draw on scripture and from a book by Frank Gabeline titled The Christian, the Arts, and Truth. To begin with, uh, what do we mean by the arts? The arts are any tangible expression of humanity where the artistic expression means more than itself. So an example might be uh, a clock. A clock is not an, a piece of art, but we could use a clock in an artistic way. That's what we mean by the expression meaning more than itself. So why invest serious time, thought, effort in any artistic work? Why should we care? I'll give three reasons and spend most of my time on the first. Because truth and beauty are at stake. And why are they at stake? Because the inclination of, of the human heart, apart from God, is away from truth. And this is a quote from Gabeline. I'd like to have you read it with me, if you would, together. We see, even in the believing evangelical community, those who look down on good and high arts, who confuse worship with entertainment, who deplore serious drama as worldly, yet are contentedly devoted to third-rate television shows, music, and art, whose reading tastes run to the sentimental, who cannot distinguish a kind of religious calendar art from finely crafted arts. If the Christian community does not take serious art seriously, then our culture will be left with the imagination of unregenerate minds and hearts that have not the goodness of creation and the glory of God in mind, but the glorification of the human heart, which we all know is deeply divided. As we're reminded in 2 Timothy, the unregenerate heart is ever learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Gabeline also wrote, art has deep spiritual and moral implications. Like the capacity for worship, the aesthetic sense is one of the characteristics that sets humankind apart from the animals. Evangelicals turn away from the arts as a side issue or frill at the peril of their own impoverishment and at the cost of ineffectiveness in their witness. For art, which is the expression of truth through beauty, cannot be brushed aside as a luxury. We who are concerned that the art we look at, listen to, read, and use in worship of the living God has integrity. So I submit then that truthfulness is foundational to great art. Sometimes truth is not beautiful, but what is essential to make non-beautiful art great that they truthfully 
represent or portray the human condition, yet also within a carefully crafted design. Beauty and skillful crafting, structure are also essential in making artistic works great. Structure also gives coherence to the meaning behind works of art, like the effective telling of a good story. All good art carries an underlying reasonableness of logic and thought. It's not enough for art to simply reflect humanity in its beautiful, untainted, original state as God made them a creation. The arts must be seen in full view of the, of the fall of humankind and the entrance of sin into the world. The creation made good at first. Christian artists must posit the answer to the human condition that resulted from the fall. Who else will? Gabeline writing again that creative Christian spirit in art should be pointing the way forward and upward, not in ignorance of that which is aesthetically unworthy of God or of mere satisfaction of the mediocre out of its familiarity. Christians must take seriously their obligation to develop critical discrimination in the arts. In addition, our silence on matters repugnant to the gospel in confronting the culture speaks volumes to the ineffectiveness of Christians in confronting the culture and winning people to Christ. Christians have an obligation not to submissively submit passively to the cultural environment that surrounds us, but to develop standards for judging it. I think the Apostle Paul said it well, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When it comes to popular culture and the gospel, John Piper observed that, quote, popular culture has several weaknesses. Most notably, it can tend to short circuit the mind and move the emotions with shortcuts. Thus, folk culture is not generally a preservative force for great biblical doctrine. Fine culture balances this weakness by preserving the concepts of truth and excellence and beauty as objective ideals rooted in God as our, as our absolute. And another author, Harold Best, in his book Unceasing Worship, suggests that believers are, quote, too easily dumbed down in God's image in our arts, unquote. He says that reflecting God's image should be our chief concern, not the culture itself. That image is simple and beautiful and at the same time complex, terrible, and powerful. This is not to suggest that folk or popular art forms have a lesser place in the Christian's life. Tim Keller writes that we should recognize that folk contemporary music has a frame of reference that's different from Bach. Each one conveys certain theological themes better than the other. But I would suggest not of the fast food variety. Christians are obligated to create art, write songs, make films that touch the mind and heart deeply and truthfully. Certainly we are surrounded by lots of popular art, but two questions remain. One, should we engage 
or consume it? And two, ought not we believers demand excellence in the art forms we produce and more importantly, consume? When concerned music in worship, C.S. Lewis commented about his self-described lowbrow perspective that if he did not understand or appreciate the highbrow, it was due to his own ignorance. So Lewis considered himself a common person when it came to the arts. He pointed out rightly that not only excellence matters, but also that the arts include intent to reflect and glorify God. So what guide is there for us Christian artists and consumers? I believe such a guide is found in the creator, in Jesus. The way he creates, the order, structures, patterns, and beauties stand as the grand model for how we ought to create and evaluate works of art. There's also an apt guide for us found in Philippians chapter 4. Let's read this together. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The second reason we should care about the arts is because, God, because humankind bears the image of God. So here we read in scripture, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In scripture, we find the aesthetic imperative, that means uh, the imperative for beauty and creating beauty. And what God says about people, he's ordained with artistic gifts. So from Exodus 35, we read these words, then Moses said to the people of Israel, see the Lord has called Bezalel by name. And he's filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, to divine, devise artistic designs for works in every skilled craft. And he, that is God, has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Third reason is because God himself is the prime artist creator. Genesis 1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and said, let us make humankind in our image. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It all belongs to him. In Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's us. God is the progenitor, the model, and the standard for all creative endeavors, including the arts. Concerning the creation, five times in Genesis 1, we're told that God made, and it, is, it was good. Then after the sixth day, God made, and it was very good, including us, humankind. Excellence in, in the arts is when we create the way God creates, through design, through unity and variety, through excellence in craft and function. Finally, I, I want to take off on C.S. Lewis's looking at and looking along example of one day seeing a beam of light in a tool shed. By this, he explained that looking at 
something, we are merely looking from the outside. By looking along, we experience that thing. And I would suggest to look along means to look at or to God as the creator. Without him, no beam of light exists in the first place. So to rightly experience the arts, we must not only look at art forms, we must look at, look through or look along them, experiencing them through Christ in order to most fully grasp their goodness, their greatness, or to critique them as shallow, depraved, or unworthy of him. We can only know this prime artist and what he's like apart from the Bible, where we find the principles for grounding our view of the arts, not looking to a secular world that can only look at the beam. So in conclusion, uh, I'd like us to read together what Gabeline wrote. The single greatest influence on the arts, as we know them in our cultural heritage, has come through scripture, because in scripture we have the great truths about man and God and the unending conflict and tension between good and evil that are the wellsprings of art, because scripture gives the arts their greatest themes and highest motivation. So may we believers aim to approve, create, and consume what looks, sounds, and feels like what God creates. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Phil and I called each other early this morning to make sure that we matched. It was very important to us that this be so. And I think some things I'm going to be talking about in the remainder of our time this morning will dovetail well with what um, Phil was talking about so beautifully. So I'm going to begin with a story. Uh, I have a friend who attended a church years ago. And so this is not my story. But sometimes you hear a story that someone is someone else's. <clears throat> and it's so powerful to you that it sort of becomes your own. So I claim the story, even though it didn't actually happen to me. And so my friend was at this church, and she was in a Sunday school class, and they were studying about how to live well in God, and, and they kind of had more of an austere view of that. And uh, so they were talking about a chapter on finances during one of their sessions. And they were kind of talking about it, and it just was like kind of bothering her like it sounded really sort of dull and gray and you know where is there any color and eventually you know she didn't know what to do and she just raised her hand and then she said what about beauty and without missing a beat the leader of the Sunday school shot back oh you mean entertainment and she said no I mean beauty and she went on to explain, for instance, wouldn't it be a right use of finances, uh, godly use of finances, to go to the Minneapolis Institute of Arts and perhaps pay money to see a special exhibition of art that really spoke to you. And so the whole class discussed her question. And they concluded this, that it would be a right use of finances to go to the MIA and look at art and pay money to do so if you brought with you a non-Christian friend to whom you hoped to witness. 
Um, needless to say, she did not last a whole lot longer at that particular church. And you know, her question has stayed with me ever since. So what about beauty? Is beauty synonymous with entertainment? Or maybe it's just another word for pretty? Is beauty only worth something if it is a means to an evangelistic end? Is there something deeper, maybe even more spiritual going on? As Christians, can a pursuit of beauty be an activity that might form us more deeply into the image of Christ? I had a similar story of being in church years ago and uh, <clears throat> at a church I used to attend, and they had a guest speaker. I do not even remember what his topic was because he was sort of going off topic at this point. But it had to do with being with his wife in France and going to the Louvre, uh, the great art museum of Paris. Uh, and he had looked at the Mona Lisa and all he did was complain about how terrible the Louvre was and how overrated the Mona Lisa was. And he was getting some laughs with this and how he just wished he could have been at like a baseball game instead. Now I think baseball can be beautiful. Uh, but I sat there feeling like this feels really wrong to me and I was feeling offended by this. And he was denigrating art and beauty and I was looking around, it's like, is anyone else alarmed? And they all were like, mm-hmm, sure, yep. And, uh, and you know, from that point on in his sermon, I didn't trust one thing he said. So is it acceptable for the church to be entirely unconcerned about beauty? Is beauty just ultimately about people's differing tastes of what's attractive and thus so inconsequential that there's nothing wrong with joking about it in a, in a denigrating way from the pulpit. Is anything lost when we do that? And I'm thinking of our theme for Humanities Week. Can we as Christians truly and deeply be a faithful presence in this world without any consideration of the role of beauty in God's world and in our faith? And my answer, as you might guess, is no, I don't think so. We see beauty valued in the scriptures from the Old Testament with the exacting construction of the Ark of the Covenant to the breastplates that the priests were commanded to wear by God, which, uh, as Exodus 28 says, as the Lord spoke through Moses, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And finally, the masterpiece of artistry that was the temple in Jerusalem. And then we can go all the way to the end of the story, to John's vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation. A city of gold, of dazzling radiance, jeweled with, and there's a huge list, sapphires, onyx, emeralds. Jasper, topaz, pearls, and many more. What it was, if nothing else, was a vision of ultimate beauty. And also, just as a side note, it's also worth noting that beauty is present in the Greek word kalos, which appears over a hundred times in the New Testament, 
and is almost always translated as good. But as theologian William Barclay says, he speaks of the richness of the word callous, saying it, quote, describes that which is beautiful, that which commands love and admiration, that which is useful, that which is honorable. Callous is the word of goodness, which is a lovely thing, the goodness which not only satisfies the conscience, but which also delights the heart and gives pleasure to the eyes. So the idea of beauty and loveliness and its importance is absolutely threaded through the scriptures. But beauty really goes deeper than that. Throughout the centuries, theologians have discussed what qualities are core to God's very being, and they call them the transcendental. So there's kind of been some back and forth with that, uh, but for the last several couple hundred years, we've landed on three, and the transcendentals are qualities of God that are so central to who God is and which God contains in such abundance that they become embedded in all that he touches and creates. And, for the, and so the transcendentals of God <coughs> are considered to be truth, goodness, and beauty. And these three are interdependent upon each other. So they're a bit like a three-legged stool. You take out even one leg of the stool and the other two are compromised. So what kind of beauty are we talking about? Are we talking about the beauty that's just kind of pretty? No, because they are interdependent, that which is authentically beautiful is good and true. That which is authentically true is also beautiful and good and so on. So they constellate around each other, reinforcing each other. And if we do take them out, what is the risk of that? For instance, beauty without truth and goodness does become a kind of false mask, maybe just something that's a passing prettiness with nothing underneath it. But goodness without beauty and truth, says Greg Wolf, becomes moralism, kind of a holier-than-thou attitude. And truth without goodness and beauty can descend into brutalism. Ever been Bible-bashed? That's what I'm talking about. So when beauty, truth, and goodness are recognized as completely necessary, completely integral to each other, we see more and more that together they form the radiance of God. And the sad part is that in the previous era of modernity, and even in our contemporary culture, and unfortunately in so much of conservative Christian culture, beauty is barely on our radar. So we need to reclaim beauty as one of the transcendentals of God and as a unique pathway to knowing God. Beauty is embedded in creation, that's for sure. But we also need to see beauty, truth, and goodness in art and support the artists that are endeavoring to invite something of the radiance of God into the work they're doing. For too long, the church has tended to marginalize, if not ignore, most of the arts. And I would say music would be the exception. But this is a mistake because we need beauty. We need the beauty of God in our lives in all the myriad of ways that it is coming toward us. Beauty helps us to come alive to God 
and to the world around us. It is transformative. Theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar said that beauty is meant to be, quote, a divine summons to change our lives. Greg Wolf comments that beauty tutors our compassion, making us more prone to love and to see the attraction of goodness. What I know is that beauty helps me to pay attention. It helps me to stay alert to the loveliness that surrounds me, the threads of which, if I follow them, will lead me to God. Well, there's so much more that can be said about beauty, and uh, my time is dwindling. So I'm going to get ready to close. Uh, but I'm going to tell just a brief story and follow that up very briefly. Uh, my, my mother passed away in March of 2014. She had a very long, lingering illness with cancer. It was a very difficult time. I was the only one of my siblings that lived in the Twin Cities. And so I was trying to do school and be a caretaker. It was really difficult. Same time, I was at a church, and I felt called to leave that church. Ministry and community had dried up. So after my mom died and all these things were happening and I was having all these other kinds of losses, I was really kind of in a bind. I felt depressed. Uh, I felt empty. I felt lonely. And later that summer after she died, there was a family reunion in uh, the Seattle area where my sister lived. And I said to my sister, can we take a trip to the Oregon coast? And she said, sure. What she didn't know is I had a big ulter ulterior motive because I kept thinking, I feel like I need to be near big beauty. So we went, and the last night we were there, I went out on the beach at sunset, and it was the most gorgeous sunset possible. And on the beach, it's like the wind is bracing on the Oregon coast, and the gray waves were just roiling, and there was just this continuous roar from the water and there was fog that day, and there was a layer of fog over the water from which the sunset was coming. And I was out there to see the sunset and take some pictures and just be there. And it was just gorgeous. And the lower the sun got, it was diffusing through the fog, and it was all these colors of orange and red and yellow and just beautiful. And it was shining off of the water that kept creeping up as the tide came in. And I remember that as a very great gift I got from God at a time when I sorely needed it. It was a gift of beauty. It was a gift of having a vision of loveliness that my soul needed. So here's the last point I want to make about beauty. I think that beauty has a very eschatological significance, that it helps us to anticipate the restored kingdom, the fullness of God's kingdom. Beauty is the tangible form hope assumes in the world, which means to me that the very nature of hope is aesthetic. And beauty's elements of radiance, wholeness, and harmony can pocket a certain all-wellness inside of our brokenness, where both interplay and are honored. And I think maybe this is the ultimate work of beauty, offering a visceral foretaste of the all-wellness to come, maybe just giving us one glimpse from one jewel that shines in the New Jerusalem temple. And it gives me hope to keep going, courage to keep trying, to not give up, because something greater and better and bigger 
surround me at all times. And, it, and beauty is a big part of that. So as I get ready to close, I echo the question, what about beauty? Can we embrace it? I would encourage all of us, not just artists, but it is for all of us. Let me just pray very briefly, and then we're dismissed. God, I thank you that you are beauty and truth and goodness. Help us to see that, to enter it, to glory in it, to find you in it. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.